Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 141 of the Foxy Podcast Show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. Behind me right now, you're hearing a piece from the album Alloys from cellist Lori Goldston and Judith Haman. It's a beautiful release that came out earlier this year on Marginal Frequency, a label run by sound artist and audio engineer Alan Jones, or perhaps more commonly referred to in his creative pursuits as A.F. Jones. On this installment of the show, we're going to be speaking with Alan about the work he has been doing with Marginal Frequency and with Laminal Audio, his audio engineering and mastering service. We'll also discuss his own solo and collaborative work that he has been up to in recent years, including some discussion of his forthcoming album due out on Gertrude Tapes later this summer. Throughout, you'll hear a broad sampling of the Marginal Frequency catalog to date, along with some of Jones's own work that has appeared on other imprints. I'm going to start things off with an excerpt from one of the most recent releases on Marginal Frequency. This comes from Mike Shiflett's 120 minutes 3-inch CD which features methods sourced from his ambitious 24-hour piece entitled Tetracosa that he released over the course of this last year. So here again is Mike Shiflett.
Well, you have an interesting background in that you served time in the military as a submarine officer, whereas your CV reads that you were analyzing and studying and monitoring the acoustic environment of the world's oceans. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about your work as an officer and how you arrived at working in sound in this capacity. Uh, sure. So I'd say around the 1990-1989 time frame, I was a student at the University of North Texas. And I had one of those Tascam 8-track. You know, it was an 8-track. It was a 488. I actually still have the unit. And in addition to recording my own music, I would use that unit to record friends and local bands and whatnot. So that unit was a kernel for a lot of things. Mixing, uh, mastering, and kind of quotations around mastering. I didn't really know what I was doing back then, <laughs> but you had to have a final product of some sort, so I guess that's a master. And, uh, you know, production and experimenting, that uh, that unit was actually very flexible for a variety of different approaches with music. But... um. I ended up enlisting as a submarine sonar technician in 1994, a few years later. It was the only thing I really wanted to do, actually, mm -hmm. uh, that specific job. And I guess I would emphasize, like, I had to do this just given the circumstances that were uh, going on in my life at the time. So Navy was a, uh, was a fix to a whole lot of problems, and it turned out to be quite the quite the good marriage uh, for me but of all the all the trades I could have chosen I was pretty much seduced by this idea that when you were submerged the uh, the sonar techs were the only ones on the ship who had some sort of real-time organic interaction with the uh, with the outside world mm -hmm. so in this case the outside world being the sounds of the ocean and also somewhat like secretively listening to distant vessels that were on the surface as a matter of uh, navigational safety. So, you know, and with, with the crews of those vessels uh, doing whatever in the world they, you know, that they might be up to, but sharing this open ocean with us. Uh, so I daydreamed a lot, right? <laughs> in some cases, our job was to keep track of such ships for, for whatever reason, and to do this required a tremendous understanding of, of sound propagation from everything from these individual discrete frequencies to more or less unintelligible bands of, of noise. So I've spent a lot of years actually underwater uh, picking man-made sounds out of these natural pulses that exist in the ocean. And the ocean is quite noisy. Mm -hmm. And then distinguishing those sounds from animals, uh, invertebrates, fish, mammals, whatnot, using well, incredibly powerful analysis equipment. Looking and reading those sounds, looking at them, you know, with your eyes, with your mind, but then while listening simultaneously to them. Well, how, how did you even discover a, a job like that? Like that, like you developed a w awareness of this, that like you knew that that was something that was like a calling for you? Yeah, so, well, you don't really. You know, you don't, uh, you know, that was, I guess I was... Uh, I was 23 years old when I was in boot camp, and I guess for perspective, that's when uh, Kurt Cobain killed himself. That was the one piece of news that the, you know, that our company commander gave us from the outside world <laughs> during, mm -hmm. during boot camp. Mm -hmm. But um, you really don't know, right? You know, so this, this the military has so much attached to it. You know, for somebody who's 
who's new to it or observing it from the distance. Um, so, so you really don't know how that track is going to take you. All I knew was that, you know, you could be a mechanic, you could be a nuclear electrician, you could be a guy that maintains the torpedoes in the torpedo room or radio, all that stuff. And sonar, just the one little blurb, it was probably like three sentences that the recruiter had a description of for the job. I was like, okay, you know, that, that sounds like a fit. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was into, I, I didn't really, you know, I was way too young to understand just how, uh, how influenced I was by the interaction with sound and, and my approach to music and how I wanted music to present and, and how all of that would marry up. You, you have no idea until, you know, you're deep into it. Right, right. Well, how did these experiences then influence the way that you would go on to later hear music and sound? And I guess how has that carried over into your audio engineering and mastering work that you do with Laminal Audio? Yeah, so everything being sort of a natural progression, it's like, you know, the, the Navy or any job for that matter, everything is so fast moving, you know, suddenly you find yourself in your 30s, and you just have out of nowhere this incredible amount of experience with a with a specific craft that you could not have plotted, right? <laughs> and I was later commissioned as a uh, uh, what's called a submarine electronics officer. This was in 2008, and I was given my first gig in the uh, intelligence community, where I worked for about six years doing a couple of different types of jobs. Um, this time, rather than being on submarines, I was kind of in the industry, uh, in that part of the Navy, overseeing the engineering of new acoustic sensors, um, and it, even in a couple of cases, defining like system capabilities, you know, those those types of things, mm -hmm. um, just, just for the engineering perspective. And with this came a tremendous amount of downtime um, compared to this crazy op tempo that we had when when you're attached to a submarine when you're part of a crew and you're you're either deploying for six months at a time or you're gearing up for a deployment doing training um, going out you know into local operation areas in Hawaii or whatever for about a week um, that was kind of all behind me at that point when I moved to DC um, I suddenly had weekends off like all the time um, I didn't have you know, 10 o'clock in the evening phone calls about something had gone wrong, you know, on the ship that we need to go fix in the morning. So with that came a lot of uh, introspection, I guess, about like, okay, what can, what can I do with this spare time? Because I'm kind of a fidgety kind of guy. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I started playing music again and uh, working with the production of my own work. And there was a natural progression from there to working with others' music. And then Laminal Audio, which is my mastering studio, was it was born out of that. I've, I've I guess, officially, whatever that means, uh, stood that up in 2012, 2013 timeframe. Mm -hmm. Well, if I'm not mistaken, you're now devoting like your full attention to operating Laminal Audio and, I guess, marginal frequency as well. So with that shift, are you kind of expanding on, on some of the services that you offer? I mean, I think in the past you were also kind of doing these, I don't know, custom-built pedals and electronics and things. Um, is that something that you continue to do? 
Uh, the pedals part? Right, right. It's something I definitely want to do. Because um, that doing that kind of work, soldering, putting together, you know, testing out a circuit, and then jamming guitars loudly through them, I mean, it's kind of a therapeutic process. <laughs> it's really, really nice uh, little hobby that I was also able to make a little bit of side income with. Uh, and I would definitely like to do that too again in the future. Um, you know, it's just a, a matter of time of, you know, how much do you have in a day to uh, keep a bunch of plates spinning. And so all my focus right now is definitely on the studio because it's the area in which I keep, I continue to get clients and new work and it's all, every single bit of it is incredibly stimulating and I might be able, that's what I'm going to do, you know, I'm about to uh, depart the Navy um, for the first time in 25 plus years, mm -hmm. and this is what I want to do. Um, sure. It's it's the thing that's, you know, what my heart is absolutely telling me uh, to go to. So, um, you know, I have the studio, I've uh, built up its capacity over the last five or six years, and I feel like it can be a full-time op full operation now, so I'm going to give it a shot. Right, right. Well, can you provide maybe a little bit about the origins of the label side of things here with Marginal Frequency, which, you know, if, if I was reading things correctly, this actually comes from like a performance series that you also hosted as well. Is that correct? That is true. So so was like the performance thing first or was the label something that came first or, you know, how did that how did that sequence of events go about? Yeah, so I was living in San Diego when marginal frequency became a thing. Um, I was done with the uh, things that I was doing in D.C. Um, I had kind of a fleet job um, that I was given in San Diego, and uh, luckily I knew a few people there, Steve Flato uh, being one of them, uh, all musicians that were uh, kind of doing somewhere on the, you know, within the boundaries of what I was doing myself, and... What I noted there was this uh, this continued inbound outbound flux of musicians or interest among the residents of keeping this kind of fringe music thing going. There's a I would say that the glue down there is a guy by the name of uh, Sam Lopez who runs a, a series, a very very long standing one called Stay Strange. Mm -hmm. And it was through him that I got a sense of, okay, what's San Diego like, right? You know, what is, what drives uh, ideas and people's interest in music here? And you know, I wouldn't have had that understanding without, uh, without Sam. Uh, but that influx and, or inflow and outflow of, of music is kind of regulated by the flow of uh these programs that are you know, kind of in the masters and PhD areas of music associated with the University of California, San Diego. Mm -hmm. um, so my my goal was to can you can you blend those two things? Can you blend this incredible um, perspective that comes with you from not just all over the country but all over the world with these incredibly talented musicians that are at UCSD and integrate that with what's going on in the in the uh, uh, the local community there uh, these truly underground uh, musicians um, all the all the way out to kind of like the harshest noise stuff right and it was the, it was an instant marriage you know and I'm not 
taking credit for that. There were a lot of people who were thinking the same ways. Um, I just stood up marginal frequency as maybe a, a, a vehicle through which, you know, that kind of thing could be demonstrated. So that's how marginal frequency was born as a, a performance series before it came, became a label. Okay, okay. Well, let's play a few tracks here from the Marginal Frequency catalog, and then we'll come back and, and discuss the label a little bit further. But I thought we would start off with a piece from this Live in Tokyo release from Skylark Quartet, which you know, I've listened to this multiple times here in the last few weeks, and it's such a really well-recorded and mastered document. I feel like I'm like living inside of that saxophone <laughs> as it's playing. <laughs> um, any other further details to set up uh, this album before we play a track from it? Sure. Uh, yeah, Skylar, a very mysterious music project. It's in my mind, it's it's rooted in the interpretation of jazz standards. Mm -hmm. um, and in the interpretation of jazz standards, depending on who's doing the playing, uh, it comes from a variety of places. You know, you can hear, you know, any one tune throughout the fifties being played by Stan Getz, or in one case, um, Mingus's band. Or, mm -hmm. uh, and it's all very different. And to me, what Skylark does is in full keeping with what some of the, you know, the greatest interpreters of, of these standards uh, did. And I was, I, I was already in love with an LP of theirs called Lark City. And w this is one of the few cases where I was approached um, almost kind of out of nowhere to consider their work for release, and of course I bit. <laughs> uh, it was a great honor to help these musicians get more of their work out into the world, which I consider to be crucial documents within this blizzard of music that we've seen and in some cases kind of endured in the streaming age. Right, right. And there's tons more I could say, but, but Skylark is an instance of music that, at least for me, it, it so benefits from the mystique of of it all of, of what they do yeah it's like this like ghostly interpretation of of jazz's past that comes seeping through like i don't know how to explain <laughs> it but uh hopefully you'll hear that here this is actually uh the second track from the this release again this is skylark quartet <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, as, as I was listening through the marginal frequency catalog, you know, preparing for this show, it really occurred to me that many other releases seem to be focused on these like in deep investigations of acoustics, of like the physical qualities of sound itself. And I mean, maybe this goes back to what we were talking about with your time as um, as being a submarine officer, but. Do you see that as sort of a common thread throughout the marginal frequency catalog so far? Yeah, I guess as a matter of taste, um, and of course with my own priorities, um, you know that 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 could be the case. I guess you know for the outside observer. I mean, one thing is is that I I'm, I do the mastering for every one of those releases and. Not so much as a matter of taste, because there's, I mean, I, I I could pick a number of mastering engineers, you know, that are out there that you know I would love to have do something for the label. But I guess for me, it's mostly a matter of quality control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every record is is mastered basically to the to the same parity level in terms of uh, ultimate volume, um, things like that. But at the same time, um, the the recordings uh, for each release, I mean, they, they vary from the r- recording processes that are using like crazy expensive mics in professional studios uh, that, you know, make it over here, you know, for, for mastering and in some cases missing or mixing, excuse me, uh, all the way out to extremely lo-fi kind of iPhone recordings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't have a preference either way for how the, the sound is, is recorded. Um, I'm always interested in, in learning how they were recorded because there's, there's just a variety of ways out there. And oftentimes uh, those recording methods are very consistent with the human <laughs> that is, is doing the music themselves. But but to answer your question, uh, when when I get into the mastering aspect, there will be sometimes an exchange of dialogue about uh, how to best present what I hear to be thematically some of the arcs of the music or or the or the narrative uh, themselves. Mm-hmm. So there never is and there never will be that I can imagine me somehow steering what the musicians are doing. I take what they present to me and I ask them to do this music because well, I completely trust their taste to begin with. And I'm not the kind to make aesthetic decisions, um, you know, for the musicians unless, you know, they ask for it or they need some help with some ideas about sequencing or whatnot. But, uh, but yeah, at the, at the, at the end of it all, I, I think if, if there's any consistency that you hear from one track to another, be it the quality of what you hear or the type of music or the presentation of music that you're hearing, um, it, it may just come down to a matter of my own taste, you know, and how it's just ultimately presented. Right. But, I, maybe kind of piggyback, piggybacking off of that idea then, I mean, do you, being that you are you know, crucial part of like the mastering process for each of those releases and things. Are are you pretty selective then in what you're willing to take on for the label? I mean, does it have to, I mean, you're, you were kind of suggesting this a little bit, does it have to spark a certain interest in you from like an audio engineering standpoint? You know, you just mentioned that there's like this wide spectrum of like lower fi- fidelity recordings to hi-fi. So 
is there something about that you're like, hmm, that that lends itself to an interesting type of work for you personally? Yeah, I guess for me, for it, it might come as a surprise, maybe I don't know uh, that uh, for someone who personally prioritizes. the sound and how it presents across the spectrum and ultimately on a CD or a piece of vinyl or something like that. Like all of that is crucially important to me, but at the end of everything, you know, when you're listening to music, I mean, these are, these are aesthetic choices that you're, that you're making with how you want to spend time in your day, you know, Mm -hmm. basically what you want to listen to uh, when you're on the way to work, you know, and and the, the label is no different to me. It's, it's as much, uh, product of musicians or the type of music that I might be into at the time um, and also the sequencing from one record to another um, you know, so I'll ask specific musicians to do something for the label and I've been very lucky to be able to you know present just some killer music from uh, artists that I admire a tremendous amount the only I guess the only artistic choice that I might make in those processes are how to present one against the other. And if they're going to um, feature in a batch, like I release two in one month or one after the other, um, I try to keep it a narrative across a kind of a, you know, a certain trajectory rather than just, you know, jamming releases out there, you know, one after the other indiscriminately. Right, right. Well, how has the label, you know, served as a way for you to explore music and and sound outside of your own work? And I and I bring that up a little bit because you said in our correspondence before doing this interview that you really have no desire to put out your own work on marginal frequency. That it was more of a, I guess, a curatorial endeavor. So, kind of wanted to ask maybe why that was the case, since you have an outlet to potentially put out your work yes so marginal frequency the label was unexpected uh it was something that i've always i guess kind of you know childlike dreamed about uh how cool it would be to run a label and hey what is that like and the opportunity came when a couple of friends of mine uh steve flato and jeff williams um had this release that they had worked on and it was an EP type of thing, EP length. And for whatever reason, I mean, it, they were getting essentially jacked around by the label that um, had agreed to put the music out. And by jacked around, I mean, you know, months had gone by, you know, they would pulse out for a response and, hey, is this happening? And basically getting no response. And believe me, more than anybody, you know, I, or as much as anybody, I understand how you know, plates can get dropped and other things have to take priority and nowhere is that more, um, you know, of a challenge for musicians than in this kind of fringe music world that we all operate in. And it's very indie and very DIY. But I began to get frustrated, not because of what uh, the label was maybe appeared to be sloughing off, but because the music was so good, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, I wanted it to get out there. I was in love with this stuff. And so that's how Marginal Frequency was born. I offered them, I said, give it three weeks. If you still don't hear anything back, you know, I'm going to create a label and we're going to put it out. And that's how the starvation time came out. Mm -hmm. And with that, I mean, there was an immediate decision. I didn't even have to make a decision. It just, 
if I ever entertained putting my own music out on this label, it didn't seem right, right? I, I don't think I could with my own conscience, just for my own, uh, you know, for my own reasons, just using it as something for my own music. I certainly don't knock that, um, you know, a lot of labels uh, will do that, but I mean, this was really born out of wanting to, to help other musicians in this case that happen to be friends of mine. And that's always been my, my focus is just focus on other people's music and, and get it out there. And, I do my own music and hopefully along the way, you know, I'll find, you know, labels or people that might be interested in what I do and, and then it can be its own thing on other people's labels. Sure. Well, we're going to play an excerpt from this Eric Laska release that you put out uh, that I guess that sort of gets at the idea that I was referring to earlier with this like intense investigation of, of sound. And uh, maybe as the title suggests, it's called presets and studies. And mm. uh, this one happens to feature, uh, software oscillators that are kind of just like firing away <laughs> in what sounds to be like a room because you can hear kind of pe- people moving in and about. And is that the case? I mean, what what was the, the setting of this particular recording? Yeah, so a lot of that is, is left to my imagination um, as to how these performances, which they were, kind of came out, but also in... in fused with uh, what I know of Eric Laska, um, who I admire very much. And my understanding is that these were uh, concepts, uh, the presets, if you will, uh, in these recordings were uh, instances of him working with oscillators at various speeds, at at various types of uh, pulses and attacks and um, in every way married with the environment uh, within which they were being played or performed. And there's one that just sounds like it, it could have been being played out at a sports bar except without the TVs on. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I love that about it because, you know, this, this merging uh, and integration of what Ricky, Eric, is, is, is doing with his own equipment um, fully at parity with these environmental uh, sounds that are coming from within a contained space. They're just beautiful music to me. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite releases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has this like really kind of jarring, sputtering quality. And I imagine people who would walk into those spaces would be maybe a little taken aback. Like, what is happening? Maybe <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's play an excerpt from this one. So this is, again, Eric Laska from Presets and Studies.
Well, I know that field recordings play a key part in, in your sound work, but you also play various instruments, both on your recordings and in collaboration with other artists. So I was kind of curious to know, like, what what your first instrument was, or like, what was what is your instrument of choice that you play? Yeah, I'm I'm foremost a guitarist. That's the that's the instrument that I cut my teeth on, um, just like any seventeen year old out there <laughs> who's serious about learning the guitar i'm sitting there with Jimi hendrix solos out of songbooks trying to nail all that stuff you went through um, your smoke on the water phase is what happened. I, oh definitely definitely <laughs> um and uh the guitar has never gone away it's um even though it's the instrument i practice least these days it's still one of the more prominent uh instruments that i use uh either in performance uh and in recordings um so I, i've stringed instruments are my uh instrument of choice and this has progressed into a uh, uh working with a pedal steel guitar which is mm. an instrument that for well over a decade I've been, I've been in love with and probably more intimidated by anything else you know i could imagine that i've ever wanted to pick up in mm -hmm. fact I, I never they're kind of spendy I, I was able to find a used one for you know an affordable price uh and decided that one day okay i'm gonna i'm gonna take this jump um and i don't care if i'm in my mid 40s i'm gonna go ahead and and learn this thing mm -hmm. and uh the way i feel about that instrument is i'll be you know if i live that long into my 80s um, if I were to play it every single week, I'd probably still only uncover by that time about 40% of, you know, <laughs> it's, it's range and capabilities, mm -hmm. what you can really do with this instrument. It's incredible. Right. Right. So I'd love just sort of the mournful quality uh, of the, the pa uh, pedal steel. Um, well, continuing on that with, with your own music, can, can you describe, I guess, how like composition factors into your work just sort of versus like the handling or the manipulation of like field recordings and I was wondering you know and maybe you can kind of talk about this in terms of your solo recordings versus collaboration but how how much of this comes out of maybe improv or are you a person that works more meticulous to meticulously to like compose what it is that you're after yeah up front for for me, improvisation is composition. Mm -hmm. I, I see there's, I don't find any boundaries between the two, at least in my thinking and my approach to music. And um, in performance, for instance, uh, I am most comfortable improvising. It's probably 95% of what I do. And, and that would go for in the, in the studio as well. Uh, as far as, field recordings and how that makes it into music and sometimes you know I do work where field recordings are presented just on their own as they were recorded and raw mm -hmm. um, it's really the I think musicians have to um, they have to execute a little bit of courage when they're sitting back and just listening to what they did uh, it, it's a very difficult at least for me uh, process to go through and you know sometimes things work 
uh, work in the sense that, hey, I think I might like to share this with others. Or And sometimes, no, that, that's just a great archival recording. And field recordings, what you gather you know, in different environments or if you're out there recording a, a specific thing within an environment, it's, it's very much the same. Um, how this works for me into making it into otherwise musical recordings or things that may sound like compositions because they involve other instruments is is really the the composition or the piece is either born out of the field recording or the field recording is something that I retroactively consider as part of the piece because I remember this thing that I did either a couple of years ago or last week that may work so well as uh, you know, a, a piece of emotional content in in the music. So, uh, field recordings, which I'm more or less on the fence about, you know, is is that what I like to? Uh, is that how I like to think about recordings that are really made of the environment? Uh, those those end up in in my work as as a matter of of taste mm-hmm. more more than anything else sure yeah well in your time working as a sound artist you know a fair amount of what you've recorded has been in collaboration with other artists and i was kind of wondering if some of that was struck up out of like live performance situations maybe going back to what you were describing uh in san diego i mean was that kind of kind of your you're in to collaborating with a number of people through that performance series that you were mentioning. My first collaboration that um, I guess was in the area of music that we're discussing and certainly um, as it relates to marginal frequency uh, is with a guitarist who I have an incredible amount of respect for by the name of Barry Chabala. And he and I shared a certain... uh, area of thinking about you know the kind of things that we wanted to do how we would want music to pre- to be presented and just doing something together that was different and this duo called steerage was uh, born out of those discussions we did a few uh, performances on the east coast this was before I moved to San Diego and uh, we ended up having a release uh, that's entitled Entropy is What the State Makes of It, and that featured on uh, the Kaduk label. Mm-hmm. And our goal with that duo was if we had to do anything by distance, which there is a lot, a lot, a lot of that um, out there in the music world where um, people are recording and, and trading tracks with one another, overlaying tracks, mm-hmm. and basically composing together just as a as a matter of convenience, um, and it's incredibly easy to do these days. Too. Right, right. Um, but our goal was that if we were to do anything by distance, um, we instituted a rule that we would record nothing that could not be replicated live. Uh, we wouldn't present any anything that was so fancy that you you wouldn't be able to do the same thing in a live setting just between the two of us. Mm-hmm. And that conversation with him and the way that that record uh, ultimately ended up has really cemented my approach toward collaborating with people, whether it's with someone like Bruno Duplant, who is an incredible composer, 
uh, in France. Um, he and I have recorded together, uh, among others, by distance. Um, that, that conversation with Barry really influenced uh, how I approached to collaborating. Sure, sure. Well, working underwater for the time that you did obviously made you not only aware of just the sounds heard under sea, but also made you aware of like the extremes uh, of these sounds and the impact on underwater ecosystems. And in one of these latest recordings that you put out, and I'm going to let you say the name of it because I know I'll trip over it <laughs> totally here, but one of these recent uh, recordings that you put out, um, you kind of get into um, the details of that. It's a, a recording of a ferry boat approaching uh, out in, in Washington, and you describe kind of what has happened with sort of the underwater noise pollution created by that. Can, can you explain a little bit of like what you were trying to document and, and get across with this recording? Yeah, that was a recording that was a matter of luck um, with how well the quality came out. Um, it was recorded with hydrophones mostly um, with some simultaneous uh, microphones running uh, in the open air. But the the record that you're talking about is a uh, it's a EP. It's about 17 minutes long, and it's entitled for a scritch tie day, uh, which is the uh, which is the genus for gray whales, okay. which is also actually the species name for gray whales. It's one of those uh, weird species out there that has uh, the same. Uh, it's recognized as its own genus, mm -hmm. uh, but there are gray whales that. Uh, come out here to the Puget Sound during their migration seasons from up north in the Alaskan waters uh, all the way down to Mexico where they do their breeding and in order to get some energy uh, they'll stop over here in the Puget Sound and and eat up some food that is available to them here to sustain them on their on their big migration um, I'm really fascinated by the species in addition to killer whales uh, and in my study of these animals uh, I've learned more and more just how uh, <clears throat> how vulnerable they are to man-made um, also called anthropogenic noise is in the underwater environment and I decided to lay out some microphones near a ferry terminal in Port Townsend Washington and I was able to catch just as the right time um, as this ferry was making its uh, turn from Whidbey Island coming east toward the terminal and I was probably at minimum about 150-200 yards away at the closest uh, point that it passed by me and it was incredibly loud David mm -hmm. really really <laughs> really yeah. loud and um, you could only imagine just by listening to this this one ferry with its uh, I can't imagine that it's a propulsion train uh, you know the engine and the way that it couples to the propeller shaft and the propellers which are cavitating through the water um, that they are maintained um, you know with any sort of periodicity that is would be considered satisfactory to uh, to being a quiet vessel mm-hmm when you multiply the amount of vessels like this and all the all the commercial vessels that come into any harbor um, near Seattle or anywhere else in the world, uh, all of those vessels in concert with one another are having a great, great effect on these whales um, 
their ability to communicate and their stress levels and their ability to localize prey. And in addition, uh, you know, the, this egregious uh, levels of sound have an effect on the prey themselves. So it makes it very difficult uh, for these animals to function in their own natural environments. And they're having to find different ways uh, to communicate with one another and f try to find prey in areas that normally aren't associated with the kind of food that they need mm -hmm. and so on. Um, so this recording of this ferry, which um, if you were to go to the Bandcamp page, it's, I think it's one of the first recordings I've done this with, but there's a, uh, there's a list, a chronological list of the types of sounds that you were hearing, right. um, you know, of, of what the ferry is doing. Um, and this was kind of a, a tribute, you know, to these, to a couple of the whales, Patch and Little Patch are the, are the names of them. Um, they're actually identified by numbers like number 49 or something like that, mm -hmm. who operate in the area within uh, where this ferry uh, was operating. Yeah. Well, you'll get to hear, I guess, uh, in about the opening seven minutes of this piece. So the kind of the approaching of this ferry, has it, is it, I, I guess, as it was approaching you, correct? Correct. Yeah. So you'll hear, uh, yeah, the, the noise that uh, Alan's speaking of here in this excerpt. So we'll play that and a little bit from your collaboration with Steve Flato, and then we'll come back and talk about uh, your forthcoming release.
Well, one of the things that you uh, provided was uh, some forthcoming material that you have coming out. And I know when I spoke with uh, Lonnie a few shows back that he had mentioned that you were doing a record on Gertrude Tapes. And uh, it sounds from what you've shared that the record's about done, maybe kind of brushing up some last minute things. Is that correct? What's the uh, the status of this one? Uh, the status is, that was pretty pretty good uh, status you gave there yourself. It's almost complete. I have, uh, I have one recording I have yet to record um, that I'm a little bit nervous about. No, I'll say I'm, I'm a lot nervous about it because um, I actually communicated with the estate and the widow of Towns Van Zant, and um, I've been given permission uh, to record uh, one of his songs, which is one of my favorites, uh, as part of this uh, record. And it's also going to be the only song on the record that actually features uh, other musicians. Mm-hmm. It's probably... I would say that that song is in every way the more orthodox um, of the pieces that you would hear on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this record uh, to coming out, and I, I couldn't feel happier uh, about it being on Gertrude Tapes, which I admire uh, incredibly with uh, with Lonnie's uh, own taste in music and, um, and the individual releases that he has on that label is, I mean, the, it's desert Island stuff, you know, mm-hmm. for me uh, yeah. these days. So what is that? Honored. Yeah. What is that like? I mean, I can understand how daunting that would be to tackle somebody like Towns Van Zant, and maybe it doesn't seem like a, you know, immediate choice for you. Who's probably known, you know, more for doing like sound art and things like that to tackle like this, you know, massive uh, songwriting legend. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So where did that come from? Well, the album, which I've been working on for longer than I care to admit, um, is it's pretty dark Um, and dark only to the degree that probably that I would understand it is, is the context, um, you know, in which each of these songs or pieces we're kind of born. It's it's a guitar record, um, and uh, air quotes for that as well. Guitar record, <laughs> but the guitar is featured uh, pretty prominently. Right, right. In this case, uh, you know, the one of the main instruments is uh, is a classical guitar. Um, but this song from Towns is one that uh, you know I sit with a lot, and I sit with a lot of his music. I know his story pretty well having seen all documentaries and mm-hmm. and uh read his biography um i'm shy of obsessed you know with <laughs> just just who this guy was uh in addition to being um a truly one of the great poets of of the 20th century mm-hmm. and so the idea that i could record one of his songs um it became really attractive to me because uh, judith haman um a incredible cellist uh, and a dear friend of mine who um, is from Australia, who I met in San Diego. She and I did a uh, a performance together in the Wolf uh, performance uh, series uh, in L.A. And um, unexpectedly or not, a piece of a Towns Van Zant tune um, developed within 
some improvising that we were doing in performance and we ended up singing it together and there was harmonizing and it's just a blip in time the way it kind of comes in and comes out and it didn't just occur to she and I at the time when we played that back and listened to it and especially the response you know from the people <laughs> in the audience for a wolf show it was it varied from that was incredible to what are you doing you know this is, <laughs> this is a wolf show right um, but not only is is it you know an okay thing to do in this area of music but it's it's fully appropriate mm -hmm. um, you know everything that that we do in music no, no matter what type of music that you play whether it's improvised or what in some way it it's always an homage to somebody else um, and it speaks of influences and uh, this is my way of of maybe um, you know tipping my hat to towns who has had such an influence you know on my thinking and um, just how challenging it can be you know to be a musician um, you know with the kind of issues uh, that he had and then at the same time it's just to say yeah you can do this you can reach out you know to the estate of of you know one of the last century's you know great musicians and see if this is okay right. now the estate's response to what this is going to sound like the jury will be out uh, <laughs> on that i think well uh before we end things here i just wanted to ask did you have any other things kind of in the works here in the year ahead that you're working on either you know big projects with a label or things of your own that you can mention at this point sure there are a uh, few more releases uh, six or seven that are going to be coming out on marginal frequency this year um, in in the uh, pocket right now as a uh, a piece that was written by Matt Sargent performed by the contrabassist Zach Roden and there is a live and a studio performance of the same piece which is uh, coming out on the label imminently um, in addition to a performing duo of Venezuelan Americans, um, and they go by Monte Espina, and they're a uh, Dallas uh, duo. And uh, this band, uh, it, I went down to play a show with Derek Rogers in Dallas, and this was where I met one of the musicians. Uh, uh, for the very first time, and he introduced me to uh, his own duo, Monte Espina. I was completely knocked out by it. I wanted in it, somehow to fit this into the catalog at some point, uh, and I was able to do that, and now the timing of it is crazy because uh, this album plays out like a lamentation for everything that is going on in their home country mm. right now. Um, and there is a lot of, I would say, uh, unplanned crossover between how the record is presented from the artwork to the music itself um, to these men and their own families' um, feelings and uh, the kind of uh, thoughts and challenges that they're enduring having relatives back in Venezuela. Uh, and with her own political views mm -hmm. about about what is happening there. And uh, for me personally, you know, it all kind of plays out somberly and, and musically uh, on this record. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we're going to wrap things up here. I'm going to start this last set off here with the title track from that forthcoming LP on Gertrude Tapes. It is called A Jurist for Nothing. And uh, we were talking about how there's something vaguely Jandekian about the guitar tones, though this is all in standard tuning, you were saying. Yes. Yeah, standard tuning um, and... This came out of it's it's silly, but hey, I want I, I need a song uh, that's in five four. I gotta uh, I gotta do a song that's in the um, five four uh, timing, and that's really how that song uh, came about. And from there, uh, found some very strange chords that I was able to uh, work with mm -hmm. uh, as as the feature kind of narrative for that song. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Alan, again for uh, taking the time to chat. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. David, thanks so much. This has really been great. been very enjoyable uh, talking to you, and, and thanks for asking me these questions. It's yeah, uh, for sure. fun to talk about. Yeah. So here again is Alan's uh, a, jury, a Jurist for Nothing.
that's going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I want to thank Alan once again for taking the time to speak with me. If you'd like to find out the complete playlist for this show, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that you can follow to bring you to each of the releases played, where you can order or download a copy. I encourage you to support these labels and artists however you can. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Check back in a couple of weeks for a new episode. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah.